0: Uh, this evening's talk <coughs> is about Kama. The Sanskrit word is karma. And beginning with uh, some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their Kama, heirs to their Kama, born of their Kama, related to their Kama, supported by their Kama. And I'd like to begin by saying something that I found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years, as I began to connect, connect with and more and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that this teaching, the teaching about Kama, offers and brings to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of or any belief in a higher authority. But rather it's founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to all things as it relates to all phenomena and particularly as it relates to human behavior. Consequently the teaching on Kama is not so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and know it in operation. As a Western woman, and I think that I can safely say this for most of us, women and men, who have primarily been brought up and conditioned as Westerners, and I think it's also safe to say that for those who have been brought up and acculturated, at least in a good part, in various Asian cultures, that it's been kind of a relief to discover that the teachings on Kama, or that the teaching on Kama is not so much as I already said something to be believed in, as it is to be understood as we come to see it and to know it in operation. And so consequently it turns out that Kama isn't something Uh, unreachable or strange. It's not an unreachable or strange concept. The teaching relevancy and understanding of kama, which is one of the central themes in Buddhism, is really really quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary and maybe even Uh, so ordinary that somehow it might elude our uh, quite complicated minds. So what is it? What is kama? Etymologically, or the root of the word kama, is action or deed. And in the context of the Dhamma It's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of looking at and understanding this is action based on motivation. In English the word motivation has a somewhat deeper and subtler meaning than the word intention does. The motivation In the mind behind or underneath or preceding the intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddhist teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So kama is intention which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus, we could say, which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is really the essence of Kama. And some words from the Buddha. Monks or yogis or nuns, it is intention, I say, that is Kama. Having willed, we create Kama through body, speech and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention, leads us to choose to act and to speak in a wholesome way. An unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or or motivation is wholesome kama. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature. The way of things. The law of cause and effect. Cause and result. So for instance, just like A rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back. Skillful or unskillful or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The Law of karma is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we then create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct, immediate experience, as we begin to understand the Law of Kama, how these consequences are created and combined and intensified throughout our life becomes more and more clarified. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, It's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered along the way of my own uh, deep practice um, to be really uh, quite amazing and, and, and illuminating is that in the context of the teachings and in the practice of the Dhamma intention actually has a much subtler meaning than it commonly uh, has in the way it's generally used and understood in everyday English. I think that we usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and then its immediate resultant external actions. So just very simple examples such as thinking or saying, I did that intentionally, or asking somebody, is that really what you meant to say? Very simple, ordinary occurrences. The Buddhist teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses in the mind, the responses in the heart to the various sensations that are received through each of our sense doors the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes maybe not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and then reaps the karmic fruit of these choices. And I think you've all tasted that in these couple of weeks of practice here, and maybe before that, at least to some degree. Intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the heart, leads the mind to proceed or to not proceed in any particular direction. So from this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs, we could say, how the mind, the heart, responds to stimuli, and as our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force, we could say, that organizes the movements of the mind, which means that intention is what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, by the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that motivation, that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that determines our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation, the intention that leads to action is what determines the results of our action. And basically, this is the teaching of cause and effect, cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. And it's possible to actually experience this process occurring with mindfulness accompanied by a clear, deep, and strong momentary concentration. And even on a very subtle level, when clear, strong mindfulness is accompanied by well-developed excess concentration. In light of this, consider that just, that even just one tiny thought that may not even be a very particularly important thought isn't without consequence. It will result in at least a teeny tiny speck of comma that's added to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. If this speck this little speck, is practiced repeatedly over and over and over again in the mind or maybe expressed repeatedly through external expression in speech or in actions. The result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits and even through our bodily makeup, such as maybe various physical expressions and maybe even physical features, as well as in the form of various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and the reactions that come to us from external sources can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways. We've all experienced this. And be strengthened when we're unaware, when we're not mindful, and are repeatedly acting out of or practicing the specks of mental comma that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like everything rests on the tip of motivation. So in saying it in a Theravada way we could say everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive kama intention It doesn't have to be on a gross level uh, for it to be effective. I remember once many years ago when I was sitting a retreat and I got a note uh, that was not uh, pleasing to me. And then I proceeded right after I read it uh, to kind of angrily, not kind of, to angrily tear it up and throw it away. Tear up this piece of paper that the note was written on and throw it away. And even though that piece of paper had absolutely no importance in and of itself, the action very certainly had some effect on the quality of my mind, on the quality of my heart. And in contrast to this, just this afternoon, as I was kind of clearing out my, my table that I use for a desk in my room, and with a very neutral state of mind, I just simply threw away a few pieces of paper with that action producing really a very different effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart. If we repeatedly, for instance, act out of angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and then may even develop to a more and more significant level. in the wheel of dependent origination or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising. uh, Kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. In light of this, I'd like to uh, read some words from Thai Buddhist scholar venerable Peyuto. And this is from his book Good, Evil, and Beyond, in the Buddhist teachings. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind, But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight onto a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight on a floor, although of a much smaller quality, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way motivation or intention no matter how small is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it's necessary to use the mind on a more refined level, previous unskillful comma, even on a minor scale, might become an obstacle. It certainly, if it doesn't become an obstacle, it becomes apparent. There's a wonderful uh, section of short uh, suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which uh, I offered in an earlier talk in this retreat. And this is, uh, these suttas are where various woodland dwelling devas approach and speak to certain monks who are practicing in those same uh, woodland thickets. And I'd like to sh- share just uh, a part of one of uh, these same short dialogues or one of the dialogues that I've already uh, shared with you as an illustration um, regarding what we're exploring this evening. And this is the verse about the bhikkhu or the monk uh, who after returning from his uh, daily alms rounds and then uh, eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he went every day to practice, he would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. And you might remember that when the deva who lived in that same woodland Thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and and wishing up to stir a sense of urgency to practice in the monk, practice properly, uh, the deva addressed the monk as follows. And this is just a a piece of this uh, a short sutta. And the deva is speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. The bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I'm a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you I ought to speak for a person without blemish always in quest of purity even a mere's hair even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud the understanding that various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now, in this very lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our Kama. We're born, we could say we spring, out of the womb of Kama. And even though we may or may not uh, like it at times, we're the undeniable heirs of our Kama. So a very uh, Ordinary example, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, in some way, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns uh, to us as what could be called our due inheritance. We've all experienced this. So, using other words, what does this mean? We could say that with everything that happens and the resultant ease or resultant dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome, meaning the response or the reaction in our, of our own mind's relationship to all of the internal and external happenings that we experience. And that might seem a little complicated. I'll say it in another way. (laughs) In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our own mind. Meaning our motivations, our intentions and the consequent actions and our wholesome responses or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena. It's all due to our own mind. Our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our own mind. Our ease and happiness or dis-ease and suffering is due to the motivations, the intentions, and the subsequent actions, the deeds of our mind, our body, and speech. Not due to our wishes, not due to our hopes, our dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer or seemingly antagonistic or seemingly mysterious or strange or foreign world. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. And as this becomes clearer and clearer through our direct experiences within our body and mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind, more and more often lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices rather than to unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. It's one of the fruits of our practice. In its powerful potential to bring good or bad results, kama could be compared to food. Some foods are good. Bringing and promoting health when we eat them at the right time and in the right amount. And some foods are harmful and bring disease. And some foods may even be poisonous for us and maybe even deadly. So we pay attention to the thoughts and the intentions behind, underneath the potential action. And we feed ourselves and thus others as well, healthy food and create healthy karma. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment and joy and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding. Knowing that we in fact are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in this knowing we can and do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more we clearly know our motivations, clearly know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of Kama And living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring, if we live in ignorance or misunderstanding with the way of things, we're living in conflict, we're living in disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound then to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, and confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we really only meet our own mind, our own heart, what is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. We really, truly begin to know that we're not trapped running around and around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though all of us are artists. But instead of canvas and paint, or maybe clay or marble or music or pencil and pen and paper as our creative medium, it's our very mind, body, and heart and the intimacy of our life experience that are the materials for our creative expression. And so again one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding. Knowing that we in fact are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in this knowing, we can and we do actively create and fashion our life. And the more that we clearly know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and the most far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views often showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which are what direct our motivation, what direct our intentions and the resultant thoughts, which then potentially flow out into words and into actions. So just maybe simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself, other beings and things, and even situations, experiences, and places as being independent, separate, and static, static meaning unchanging in this situation, we're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance. What's called wrong view in the Buddhist teachings. Ignorance, ignoring the truth of things. And with this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are coming from a self-centered disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering at some point to ourself and also possibly, very possibly, to others. If we have the understanding, if one is experientially, through practice, growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together and that in fact the causes and conditions themselves are always also in flux that nothing, no thing abides independently or separately or is static. Then our intentions, our motivations are coming out of understanding the truth of the way of things. Our intentions, our motivations come out of what's called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of Words and actions all come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being and are appropriately responsive in any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and also in relationship to others. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Monks, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily karma created as a result of that view, verbal karma created as a result of that view, and mental karma created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations. All are produ- productive of the results, of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding to no ben- benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted to a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? because the seed is not good. Monks, yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations. All are yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It's like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat or a fruit seed which has been planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account is that? On account of that good seed. an important uh, aspect of right view in relationship to uh, to that which is called self, me, which is at least in part and very often uh, a reference, uh, is is at least in part and is very often a reference to this body as self, this body as me. And as we explored somewhat briefly, in a, a Dhamma talk last Sunday, this body is actually not a solid something, but rather a process of that's made up of many, many elements, with all and each of them being in continual flux, changing all the time, arising and passing. And this is the four great elements and the, as we know it, the experiential characteristics that we come to know directly through our practice. And I just wanted to read you the characteristics or share with you the characteristics again of each of the elements. The characteristics are what's important because that's what we experience. So the earth element characteristics are hardness, roughness, Heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The characteristics of the water element that we experience are flowing cohesion. The characteristics of the fire element that we know through our direct experience is our heat, warmth, or coolness and coldness. And the characteristics of the wind or air element that we directly experience is our supporting and pushing. This experiential understanding of the body can actually be quite an important and illuminating step on the path of right view in relationship to experientially understanding, not-self, impersonality. And in this light, the Buddha spoke about, and these are his words, actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within this essentially impersonal karmic process, Our actions are like seeds that are planted and then transformed into the various shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished, and some seeds may be dormant for many, many years, maybe, maybe even many lifetimes, until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise that allow them to germinate and always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed and the simple metaphor that's often used to explain this is that an apple seed brings apples into the world and I like to say lettuce seeds which are the tiniest little things Lettuce seeds brings lettuce into the world. A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. And an angry or a hateful act produces at some point hateful fruit. Not self impersonality behind our actions uh, doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. And we need to couple our understanding of selflessness, of not-self, of the impersonality of it all with a very mindful and very respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more more deeply that karma is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, then unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise. That if they arise or when they arise, we may then unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or some future suffering. uh, just a brief teaching from Padmasambhava who's said to be the uh, person that brought the Buddhist teachings to, to Tibet and Bhutan Though your vision is as vast as the sky your attention to the law of kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act and also the awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said and performed has the, actually has the effect of broadening our field of choice as we work, as we practice to purify and transform our mind and heart and actions. We're not running on automatic, then. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving kindness, and compassion towards others, it comes back to us. And we also see and feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression or anger or greed or grasping. An important point that I think very important to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's really not important where It's really not so important. I mean, it's important on one level, but on another level it's really not so important where your present suffering came from. What's really important is where you take it from here. Meaning, what's most important is how you approach the situation in the moment. So, a simple example, not so simple in action, but uh, the appropriate and healthy and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be is compassion. As we traverse this path through our practice we clearly begin to see and to know that there's a refuge so to say, a refuge where the suffering of confusion, fear, anger, resistance, discontent, that very long list, <laughs> can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds, our good actions. Refuge refuge, from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thoughts, words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there really comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past, and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, maybe even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and the heart, is a very good deed. The best, really. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in and through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been very important to me, personally, in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. We've heard, all of us, in some fashion, from somebody. Well, it's just too late. Forget it. It's too late. Can't, can't change anything. We can. It's never too late. And so we practice this, and it becomes established in us, and it becomes a refuge. And at some point, we really know for sure, as was uh, said by one of the Buddhist disciples more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more of a certainty in our mind, the mind, the heart, becomes more tranquil and more serene. And through our practice, we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the various difficulties that come up in our practice and that come up in our life as a whole. As the refuge, of doing good deeds becomes our way. Our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate result of our deeds brings us maybe some degree of sorrow or discomfort or pain, maybe through the way others treat us, or through maybe some upheaval or some turmoil in our life. Or maybe in some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may not be at all what we expected. Maybe often what we expected, not what we expected, not what we maybe had in mind results that maybe are contrary to what we might think our intention or our motivation was. Many years ago, um, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me uh, at appropriate times in our work together, this isn't what I had in mind. which would actually always just stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, to take a very close look at my motivations and at my expectations. And actually, most importantly, in, in those moments, to simply be with what was occurring, with as open a heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that moment. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. And some of you know this quite clearly, or are learning it quite quite often. And maybe sometimes a stern and in a certain way kind of a very demanding teacher, yet really potentially a truthful and very well-intended friend we learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful, motivations to, a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us repeatedly into suffering to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born or being reborn into the realm of suffering. And I'd like to, uh, in light of this, I'd like to uh, read uh, just a a portion from uh, a book called And There Was Light by Jacques Luciran, who was a man who was involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is a section from his autobiography that very beautifully illuminates our discussion on Kama. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind, and being blind was not at all as I imagined it. "'nor was it uh, as the people around me seemed to think it. "'They told me that to be blind meant not to see. "'Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? "'Not at once, I admit, "'not in the days immediately after the operation, "'for at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. "'I followed their usual path. "'I looked in the direction "'where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. "'There was anguish, a lack of something, "'like a void which filled me "'with what grown-ups called despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course, and I began to look more closely. Not at things but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight towards the whole, towards the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within but radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together." I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so for many years, I think. I said so, but for many years, I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing that this was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness that seems to them quite natural. But there's no such night, for at every waking hour and even in my dreams I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them, as I remember it. There were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock. If I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move about the house, the garden or the beach, was by not thinking about it at all or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything, was in the, where everything in the room was. But if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid themselves in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes, and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened, and I was helpless inside it but when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. He has to learn it, for every time he forgets that he's not alone in the world, he strikes against an object, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time he remembers, he is rewarded, for everything comes his way. and closing the talk this evening with some words from the Buddha. All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with the clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And the Buddha goes on to say, Therefore one should reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. And, the Buddha tells us, it is by mental defilement that beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And let's sit quietly for just a moment.